From Bloom Network, I'm Magenta Siba, and this is the Bloom Network Podcast, bringing you the latest news and best practices in regenerative culture. Today we're here with John Light, who runs the blog P2P Connects Us. On his blog and podcast, John connects people who are practicing peer-to-peer networks in various applications. The more we communicate with each other and share these ideas and practices, the faster the revolution, or evolution, can happen. John, could you describe a little bit how you got into Bitcoin and decentralization? Sure. So. I first got interested in the concept of decentralization when, I guess, let me back up a little bit. I came of age around the time that the Great Recession started in 2008. I was 16 or 17 years old, and it was also an election year, and so there there was a lot of kind of political ideas and concepts and arguments that were on my mind um, as I was thinking about, I wasn't yet old enough to vote yet, but I was kind of having these discussions with my peers in in high school. And um, I was starting to get interested and and kind of find my way in terms of what I believed and what I, what values I had and, and how those values were reflected in, in different political parties and things like that. And, um, and then the reset, the great recession started in September of that year. And I remember the response from the government was to intervene heavily and, um, spend a lot of money trying to fix this problem. Um, Auto companies got bailed out. Um, Various banks got bailed out. Various banks didn't get bailed out. And it was very interesting to me to watch this all play out and watch them throw untold sums of money. Like I didn't even, before this thing happened, I had no conception of what like the budget was or anything like that at a national level. But when I saw numbers like trillions of dollars being thrown around, I was like, whoa, whoa, what? Trill like with a T trillions of dollars. That's, that's a thing. And, and when I, when I started to really wrap my mind around like the scale of, of this problem, I thought like, wow, this is a really fragile system. Like there's the, the, the system is so heavily centralized that it requires like huge percentages of the total amount of money that goes through our economy to solve this in, in a very short period of time. And, and, you know, the national debt and the deficits are going through the roof at the same time. And so I, I, I started getting interested in one, you know, how this happened, like why this was able to occur in the first place, and two, how this could be prevented in the future. Um, and that led me through an interesting discovery process of uh, economics and finance and understanding the history of money. And because um, I graduated, um, I graduated in 2008. And so I had, after that, I, I didn't go straight into college. I had all this free time. So instead of going to college, I just basically did all this research and stuff. 
and um, and ultimately, once I understood kind of the problem, it, it became a process of like trying to solve the problem, and I came in. I started looking into different um, different alternatives to these kinds of alternative money systems, alternative governance systems, and different ways that people have been trying what I discovered for the past, you know, couple centuries, really, to, to, to provide resilient systems, to provide alternative, resilient, decentralized kinds of systems that prevent the kind of accumulation of wealth and power and control um, that has ultimately created the, the fragile system that led to the Great Recession happening. And so that's how I got interested in in those topics thank you yeah for a lot of our listeners i think are new to bitcoin or have heard about it and haven't quite gone down that research train yet Mm -hmm. so i'm wondering if you can give us a brief introduction to what bitcoin is and what it's being used for and what its potential uses are sure so bitcoin is probably the most interesting technology i've ever come across in my life um so at its core uh so the 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 white paper that was released to introduce bitcoin was called bitcoin a peer-to-peer electronic cash system and that explains exactly what it is at a high level it's peer-to-peer meaning that nodes can come into the network and leave the network without permission from anybody and also means that communication on the network happens directly between peers or different nodes on the network. Uh, We see peer-to-peer systems in, you and I are talking peer-to-peer right now in the physical world, but in the digital world, we also see peer-to-peer generally as a network topology among computers uh, in a network. BitTorrent is a popular peer-to-peer file sharing network. And Bitcoin basically applies the same kinds of concepts to a value transfer system. So, I mean, kind of at a low technical level, the way it works is that everybody stores a copy of the ledger, which is basically the current balances for all of the accounts who have value in the system. And then there's a chain of digital signatures, which shows how value has been transferred from the very beginning of the system. So when I download a Bitcoin client and start downloading the history of the ledger, which is referred to as the blockchain, um, and I'll explain why in a minute, I basically see a history of all the transactions that have ever happened, and I'm able to verify that those transactions are correct thanks to essentially math, cryptography, but a chain of digital signatures which says, you know, this is the person who started with the money. They correctly signed a transaction to transfer this money to somebody else. And this happens over and over again until we get to the current day, the current moment in time. And basically the way the system works is like every 10 minutes, a bundle of transactions is put together and verified by a network of computers called miners. And they just basically check to make sure that all of the signatures are correct. They check to make sure that all of the balances add up. 
and they bundle these transactions into what are called blocks. And then when, <clears throat> excuse me, when a block is solved, new Bitcoins are released as a reward for doing the work to verify that the transactions are all valid and providing the so-called proof of work, which proves that it was a, a unique a verification. And then this block is added to the chain of previous blocks, and thus you have a blockchain. So that's how it works on a low technical level. Mm -hmm. Just to recap, everybody stores a history of the transactions. Some computers are actually uh, performing work in order to um, mint new blocks and new Bitcoins. And then these Bitcoins are transferred peer-to-peer -peer between people on the network. And it because it's a peer-to-peer -peer system, anybody can join and leave whenever they want. And no one's in control. There is no Bitcoin company. There is no Bitcoin government, <laughs> really. It's all regulated by math, essentially. Thanks for that introduction. And what are... I've heard people tossing around the idea that the blockchain, this, this idea can be applied not only to currency, but potentially also to governance at some point in the future. Is that something that you can talk about? Or, or if not, can you describe more in general terms uh, decentralization of governance? Yeah, so... I mean, as the, the title of the white paper kind of implies, Bitcoin was designed to, to just be a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. You know, the Satoshi Nakamoto, the author of the paper, was trying to figure out a way to solve value transfer on the internet without relying on a third party, like a trusted third party like PayPal or a bank or credit card company or any of these intermediaries. And, and Satoshi solved that problem with the blockchain, um, with this unique system of mining and producing coins and incentivizing the verification of transactions and um, you know, having everybody store a copy of the ledger instead of just this one trusted third party. And that in and of itself was, was a very revolutionary kind of invention, a discovery, um, however you want to phrase it. But what people have discovered since then is that this technology, the blockchain, um, can be used to disintermediate many different kinds of trusted third parties. Not only trusted third parties of uh, uh, maintainers of who maintain a ledger of money, but who maintain ledgers of all kinds. Money is really just the first app, as some people say, of Bitcoin. Um, you know, the Bitcoin token is required by the system to incentivize um, miners or other computers to maintain the validity, the integrity of the blockchain, the history of transactions. And thus you have this organic currency like token that comes built into the system. But if you can assume that the blockchain is secure and and that all transactions are valid because of this proper incentivization scheme, you can 
do all kinds of different things with this this blockchain and some of those use cases include like title registries um, which could be titles to all kinds of different property land uh, cars real estate um, anything that you can keep track of ownership of you can you can kind of represent as an asset on the the blockchain and then transfer those between people without needing a trusted third party to verify it because you have a record sealed in the history of the blockchain that this happened. Um, you can also use it for voting. There's some complexity involved in that, particularly if you're trying to build like an anonymous voting system. Um, some voting requires anonymity, others you want accountability. Um, you can use it for issuing stocks directly onto the, the blockchain and tracking stock ownership. Um, there are many different potential use cases that people have come up with for this technology. Um, I, for instance, used it to timestamp copies of the open source book that I wrote about Bitcoin uh, recently. Um, the first version of the book, I basically created a one-way mathematical uh, proof that the book existed um, called a hash and then stored that hash in the blockchain. So now forever, if anybody were to come along and also release a copy of that book and say, I wrote that, I can say, no, you didn't. And here's the proof. I mean, it has huge implications for um, just tracking ownership of all kinds of different things and um, including art and music, books, and all kinds of different uh, you know, ideas that before required a government with a, their intellectual property system to kind of uh, create proper attribution of inventions and stuff for people. So a lot of possibilities there, really. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you giving that overview. This is the first time I've kind of started looking into Bitcoin and decentralization as facilitated by digital means. Uh -huh. um, and so I kind of have a, a vague notion of what it can apply to, but that helps me uh, understand where to research further and that sort of thing. Are there any yeah. websites that you look at regularly um, or that publish updated information on some of those areas of Bitcoin, like the alternative applications of the blockchain? Um, there's, there's not really any particular website that, that has this um, information all in one place. Uh, it tends to be kind of scattered, but there are kind of central places that act as directories that help you find different, like, so... The Bitcoin subreddit is a great place to go, um, subreddit being a subsection of the reddit.com website, um, to find all kinds of different uh, news, news stories about Bitcoin specifically. Um, now, Bitcoin itself is limited in its capabilities intentionally. First, it was the, it was the first of its kind. And so its creator intentionally limited its capability um, 
perhaps because there are fundamental limits in terms of what's possible with this technology, how far we can push decentralization. But it could have also just been to, you know, to stay on the safe side. Now, there are more ambitious kinds of projects which are trying to generalize the capabilities of these decentralized blockchain systems like Ethereum, which is probably the most um, well-known such attempt. Um, that's E-T-H-E-R-E-U-M. And um, Ethereum is basically saying that, you know, if Bitcoin is like a specific application that's limited to only what the the um, programmer has enabled it to do, then Ethereum is a computer, meaning that you can program any kind of application with it. And that means that you could program the governance rules for an entire organization. And so because of this new kind of freedom that Ethereum is trying to allow people to have with their particular blockchain system, um, if the Ethereum community in general tends to have a lot of really big ideas for what's possible with this technology. So the Ethereum blog on their website, ethereum.org, is a great place to find some of the cutting edge ideas, their forums, as well as their own subreddit, uh, on on reddit.com uh, are great places to find really big thinking kinds of ideas for what's possible with blockchain technology and, and decentralized applications. Here for a second, um, yeah. can you describe more what that means in general and what the scope of what you cover with on your blog is? Sure. So the scope of the blog is that we I, I like to cover all things peer to peer. So peer to peer philosophy, technology and culture is kind of the way that I, I look at it. And I think that the culture is really a distillation of the philosophy and the technology. It's using the philosophy as kind of a, a guiding, um, a, a guiding mechanism, and then the the technology is kind of like the enabler that really allows this to to come into practice in a meaningful way. Uh, people have experimented with different kinds of peer to peer um, kinds of organization, social organization for a long time, um, but it's never really been able to scale just because of coordination problems. And so when I talk about peer-to-peer, -peer, what, I, what I mean is that people are interacting with each other as peers. There is no kind of hierarchy that says, like, I am intrinsically better than you and you should listen to me. And, uh, 
and there's no kind of um, automatic subordination as we've seen in various kinds of political systems ranging from monarchies to even you know elected democracies there's still hierarchies of various kind degrees and peer-to-peer is is a much more you could say democratic way of organizing where we all look at each other as equals and that's kind of the philosophy which would inform even technical systems and people who design peer-to-peer technical systems might not think it think of it like a, a social philosophy they might be very hierarchically minded socially but they can see benefits to creating peer-to-peer systems such as resiliency such as um, freedom and um, decentralization is both of those things together. It's like freedom and resiliency because you have freedom to come and go because there is no central organization that can that can make that decision. Um, and you have resiliency because there is no central organization that can be kind of taken down or attacked. And you can apply this in a social context and you can apply it in a technical context and putting those things together, I think is kind of where we're moving as a society. Um, there are, there seems to be more people with more egalitarian kinds of viewpoints um, all across the world. I see the internet connecting people in new ways that allows people to have a better sense of empathy for people who might be different than them. And that could help inform people that, you know, we're not so different that we, no matter where we are at, what our context is, we have similar struggles and that's helping us to relate on a more peer to peer level. And with the technology, what we're able to realize is peer to peer discourse where we don't have to rely on any sort of central authority or central intermediary to even facilitate those connections. Instead, we can actually connect directly peer to peer on the internet and have these conversations that I think will ultimately lead to a scalable peer-to-peer society. Like I said at the beginning of this explanation, peer-to-peer forms of social organization have existed for a long time. Probably one of the most common that people will encounter is like a cooperative or a collective where there is no boss or there are no bosses. Instead, it's it's run as a democracy of sorts. Um, that works at a small level, but does it scale? You know, I don't think it does, and it hasn't before. And so, hierarchical systems, just as a matter of like reducing transaction costs and increasing economies of scale 
have been what's what's dominated but now that we have technology that connects everybody you know a computer in our pockets that i can use to connect direct direct directly connect peer-to-peer with anybody whose contact information i can get can get um suddenly the transaction costs of coordinating on a peer-to-peer level at global scale have completely collapsed and so peer-to-peer um or P2P Connects Us, my blog, basically explores what kind of implications this could have. It covers current events, but I also like to get a little bit futurist and and think like big picture, long term. What does what do these trends that I'm covering in the news, uh, what what kind of implications does that have long term? Mm-hmm. One of the things that you, when I, when I first started talking to you at the Future of Working conference, you were showing someone Ripple on your iPhone. Yeah. And um, I'm wondering if, as a specific example of decentralization as applied to, the example you were giving was um, housing transactions, um, I think, or cooperative housing or something like that. Can you describe what Ripple is doing and that, that specific application of decentralized yeah yeah so ripple is a really interesting technology um it has its origins in a project also called ripple that was started by a developer named ryan fugger and um basically the idea that he was setting out to manifest was a peer-to-peer mutual credit system or social credit system where I could create lines of credit with people that I trust. And if I ever needed to like get spotted money or something for lunch, there would be a really easy way of keeping track of that. And ultimately, you know, we we could basically just trade around credit amongst our, ourselves and, you know, settle at a later date or just keep these debts circulating as credit forever in, in perpetuity as a, as a way of, of like keeping track of small trade or small favors and stuff. And, and then um, later on, after Bitcoin was invented, um, there was a couple, there were a couple developers in the Bitcoin community who were like, Hey, this is a really cool idea, but this mining thing seems really wasteful. Um, that mining process that I described, which basically includes new bundles of transactions into the blockchain, um, is very computationally expensive. The way that Bitcoin is designed is that the more computers are trying to do this, the harder it gets. And that's how it regulates the rate at which these blocks are produced and the rate at which new Bitcoins are uh, introduced into the system. I'm just going to jump in for a second too, and the, the implications of, of um, it requiring a lot of computation power are it also requires a lot of processing power, which requires energy or electricity. So people tend to not be aware of how much electricity is used to power these things. Is that is that part of the that's nature that as well? that's all of it, right? right. And and so ultimately, um, these Bitcoin community members, uh, Jed McCaleb and Arthur Brito. Uh, were the founders of the second incarnation of, of Ripple, 
um, what ultimately came to be well known as Ripple today. And they said, wow, all this power, all this energy is being used to secure this network. Is there a way that we can do this uh, more efficiently? And um, they, they looked at, I, I don't know if they, they just looked at the Ripple system and saw that there was uh, some cool concepts that they could work on there um, and bring into this uh, new Ripple system. It wasn't called Ripple at the time. I think it was just called like new coin or something like that. Um, but they, they hired a developer, uh, David Schwartz, to work on the, cons- the new kind of consensus system. Um, consensus being kind of the technical term for that agreement across the whole network that the current state of the ledger is valid, that all of the transactions and balances add up. That means the whole network has come to consensus or agreement that that's what the current state of the ledger is. And um, they were like, they hired uh, David Schwartz to develop the new consensus system. And the way that it works is fundamentally different than Bitcoin. Whereas in Bitcoin, anybody can come and go. There's no uh, assumptions of trust in the network um, because it's totally peer-to-peer at at all levels. Um, In Ripple, the whole system is actually built on trust. So the way it works is that the the nodes that are actually validating new transactions they trust e- they trust each other explicitly uh, what they have is they call they have what's called a, a unique node list which you can think of as like a friends list of all of the nodes that they would trust to validate the transactions and um, when you have say 10 different nodes doing this validation they might all have different unique node lists, but they overlap enough that they can all come to consensus about what the current state of the ledger is. And then, so that's how it works on a kind of network level and at the the ledger validation level. And then one level above that is the trust between the users of the network themselves. Like I said, the Ripple was designed to be a social credit system. And so there's Uh, ways to express trust among users about how much credit I actually want to extend to you. I might trust you to owe me $100, but I'm not going to trust you to owe me like $10,000. And so what what users on the Ripple network can do is they can express uh, what are called trust lines to other users on the network for certain amounts of credit. Um, And it doesn't necessarily have to be debt that um, the users trust other users for. It can also be tokens that represent ownership of some kind of asset. Um, so in the context of the discussion that uh, you kind of walked into at the Future of Working conference, I was describing a way that Ripple could be used to issue tokens that represent um, like volunteer hours that are worked in a co-housing community. And then a way that the Ripple exchange system, because Ripple has basically a built-in currency exchange into the network where 
buyers and sellers of different assets can place bids and asks for different assets or buy and sell orders for different assets where this co-housing uh, cooperative could issue assets that represent volunteer hours and then create an exchange rate in the Ripple exchange for uh, dollars that so that people would be able to, to cash in those um, volunteer hours for services offered by the co-housing community, mainly rooms, somewhere to stay, or any other services that the co-housing community might offer. You can also do this with Bitcoin. Um, it's just that the the because Ripple was fundamentally designed to be a credit system with a distributed exchange built into it, um, based on the problem that the guy I was talking to is trying to solve, it seemed like Ripple might be a better solution. But you could also do something like this with Bitcoin if you wanted to. Ultimately, you just need a ledger, and that's it. If you want this, if you want the asset that you're issuing on the ledger to be fungible and you don't want to have to worry about it being like maintaining any sort of infrastructure then you want something like a blockchain or the ripple ledger system that's pretty much it mm -hmm. does that pretty much describe yeah what you're looking for cool and so is is ripple have you studied um let's and time banking and mm -hmm. local currency and that kind of thing. And is Ripple a let system, basically? You can well, you can create a let system with the Ripple technology for sure. Like, like I would consider what they were originally going for the the Ryan Fugger model model, um, like a let system, local exchange trade system. Um, just like on a much smaller scale, he was thinking like friends. Whereas a, a let system is like, I think mostly most of them are focused on businesses, um, because people are transient. They like drop in and out of social circles and stuff a lot, so they're less reliable, um, generally speaking. But businesses, it's like you have to like make an investment in like retail space and infrastructure and hiring people. So businesses are more likely to be around long term. So they they make a little bit more sense for. A, a let system to be based around um so you could build one of those on top of ripple but it doesn't have to be used for that mm -hmm. like in fact ripple labs the company that is the the current maintainers of the ripple protocol um they are focused on banks specifically they're looking at this as replacement infrastructure for different payment networks like swift fedwire ach mm -hmm. and some of these legacy payment networks that have that that have been known to be very kind of inefficient they take a long time and there's a lot of costs involved with with using those kinds of systems and so they're thinking like you know this we can use this digital online like internet-based payment rail to replace these legacy payment systems and have currencies uh trade against each other in our currency exchange because like i mentioned earlier ripple has a currency exchange built into it and so because it's a peer-to-peer -peer currency exchange system um there's not an easy way to like front run trades or to fix prices or anything like that it's a totally free market where anybody can place a bid or an ask for a different currency 
And the idea is that with enough liquidity, ultimately you will have the absolute best prices in the world on this system because everybody everybody's competing to to on all of the trades uh, to facilitate different exchanges between different currencies. Um, so Ripple Labs is focused on the bank and credit union local as well as interna- international is really where the pain points are at. But um, that's what they're focused on. But Ripple is ultimately an open protocol. Anyone can download the open source software or create a Ripple wallet and start using it for whatever they want. Mm-hmm. How scaled are these things? Um, maybe in terms of people or uh, um, how many countries are participating with with, mm-hmm. with Bitcoin, with Ethereum, with Ripple, with I imagine there are multiple other platforms. Yeah, I mean, so there are tons. I mean, like um, there's a long tail. So it's like there's you know Bitcoin, which is the the most liquid cryptocurrency market and and so it was also the first so it probably has the the highest rate of adoption and recognition um it's about uh depending on (laughs) where the price is at on a day-to-day it's somewhere between like a four and five billion dollar market right now i think um and ripple is like number two and it's like far behind i mean it's probably 10 percent that maybe Mm -hmm. like half a billion dollars so 500 million dollar market something like that um and then there's a long tail of marginal players that that you know me too kind of uh, technology um but ripple i think has around 200,000 active accounts um rip one of the creators of the Ripple protocol, uh, Jed McCaleb, actually split off from the company, Ripple Labs, um, in 2013 and announced a project that is basically a copy of Ripple um, with some new improvements that he's introducing called Stellar. They actually have, I believe, a couple million accounts. Um you know, since these are just numbers in a computer, it's not completely clear whether these are all unique accounts or whether there are a bunch of accounts owned by a small group of people. Um, but, you know, the, the most accurate way of looking at the adoption of these systems is like this, who's got skin in the game? And that is, you know, what's the market cap of the currency? What's the market cap? What's trade volume look like and stuff like that? And right now, Bitcoin's number one. It's like five, like I said, around five billion billion dollars. Ripple's number two, and then um, there's like Litecoin and BitShares and Stellar and Darkcoin and all these other coins that's, that makes up the long tail of mm-hmm. of innovation. Ethereum doesn't even really exist yet in in kind of operational form. It's still a proof of concept. They have a test network that people can use to experiment with different distributed applications or smart contracts, as some people call them. Um, but the actual live network has not yet been deployed. So um, it, it, for all intents and purposes, it has no users. But 
a very big community of people who are testing out the the proof of concept version mm -hmm. of the technology. that you gave a really interesting answer to which is so people have told me a very high percentage of alternative currencies i forget if it's 99 95 or 99 percent of them become ponzi schemes ponzi schemes, ponzi yeah. schemes. <laughs> um and i asked if bitcoin was that and mm -hmm. you kind of described um why that's not the case with bitcoin and the the trajectory of development from the um initial bitcoin people who now have a lot of bitcoin and how that gets distributed and how um more people adopting bitcoin is beneficial can you kind of recap that yeah yeah so it's it's really interesting because um you know one of the first things that people who don't really understand maybe they do um but i don't want to make too many assumptions but if you don't really understand the why of Bitcoin, then when you look at it, you're just like, why? <laughs> you know, that's like the first question you ask, like, why are people putting money into this thing that isn't intrinsically worth anything? Like, it's not backed by anything. It's doesn't, like, you know, gold has been a store of value for millennia, um, it's like over a thousand dollars an ounce for this shiny thing that people dug out of the ground. Like why? Like why? Well, I mean, fundamentally, Bitcoin or gold has a lot of properties that make it good stores of value. Like it's it's portable. I mean, it's not super portable. It gets heavy if you're trying to transfer a lot of, of value. But it's it's portable. It's divisible because it's atomic it's like you can subdivide it down into very small units and and it's fungible um it's uh durable so it stores value pretty well through time and of course it has industrial use values as well you can make like very uh highly conductive metal uh wires and stuff like that out of it and it has like aesthetic value too with jewelry and things like that so gold has a lot of real world utility that adds to its kind of appeal as a store of value um then you get to the transition from like commodity money to like fiat money which is basically money that is valuable because the government says it's valuable um fiat by definition means by decree um it has like like i not too many people realize this when, when I first have this discussion, but like the dollar is not backed by anything. It's just a piece of paper that you have to pay your taxes with. So it's basically backed by force because if you don't pay your taxes, then like you go to jail. So it's backed by force. And in some ways there's like an oil component to it as well, because a lot of countries either choose or are forced. It's not really completely clear, but they pay 
for oil with dollars. And so that kind of creates some intrinsic demand for dollars. But ultimately, it all comes back to, you know, American citizens have to use dollars to pay their taxes. And they also have to accept dollars as uh, a way of settling debts. It's called legal tender. Um, Other than that, it's not backed by gold. We got off the gold standard like 40 or 50 years ago is when Richard Nixon closed the gold window. And then before that, when we started the Bretton Woods system, that was really the, the end of the gold standard. So fiat's not backed by anything. But then you get to Bitcoin, which isn't even backed by force. Like no one's forcing you to use it. Um, no one's forcing you to, to use it to pay for things or to accept it. So like, why is it valuable? It's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, but it gets to the heart of, of your point about like Ponzi schemes or, you know, how it's benefiting early adopters and such, because as I mentioned earlier, the way that Bitcoin works, the more computers that are trying to earn Bitcoins, the harder it gets. That's how the supply of the, the, the money supply, so to say, is, is regulated in Bitcoin. And so way back in the beginning of the system, when people first started using it, it was really easy to mine Bitcoins because there weren't that many people trying. Um, And so you had a very small group of people, maybe a couple hundred people, um, if that, all mining like 50 Bitcoins approximately every 10 minutes. Um... (laughs) it's pretty incredible to think about now, but um, you could do, like one person could do this with a laptop for a while. And so you have these early adopters that accumulated a lot of coins. And this was all part of the design because suddenly those early adopters had an incentive to make these coins worth something. Now, if you think of it like, from a cynical point of view, you're like, okay, so they just basically have to convince other people that these coins are worth something so that they'll actually give them real money and they can get rid of this fake money. But Bitcoin is more than just fake money. It's the first peer-to-peer electronic cash system. Like it's the, it was the, when Bitcoin first came out, it was the only way that I could send value from my computer to your computer without any intermediary being able to charge me fees in between or tell me that I couldn't do it for political reasons or something like that. And because Bitcoin is um, is still the most liquid market and it also has the most... Uh, computing power securing its ledger it's it's the most secure way of transferring that value and it's also the most practical way because it has a high amount of liquidity which means that there's less slippage between transactions meaning that it doesn't cost me that much to get into bitcoin and it doesn't cost that much for you to get out of bitcoin and so it's still cost efficient uh, to send value that way instead of using PayPal or or some other kinds of way of doing it. There are also features of Bitcoin that uh, preserve a user's privacy. 
because Bitcoin is peer to peer, there's no central organization that's hoovering up people's personal data or requiring people to, to input personal information to use the system. And so there's a, there's a degree of privacy that's possible when you're using Bitcoin. Um, for a while, Bitcoin was the only way, it might still be the only way to contribute to an organization like Wikipedia, or excuse me, like WikiLeaks. Um, Wikipedia does accept Bitcoin. They just, uh, they kind of bury it in their FAQ somewhere. But WikiLeaks uh, experienced a payments blockade uh, several years back, and they solved that problem uh, by using Bitcoin. Now you can donate to WikiLeaks through uh, like the Freedom of the Press Foundation, which will accept credit cards or PayPal or whatever, and then send the money to Wikipedia or I keep saying Wikipedia, WikiLeaks, um, however they do it. But like Bitcoin is really the only way to get around political blockades like that. So Bitcoin is valuable for all of those reasons. And if you agree with those reasons and you think that a system that fulfills all of those different use cases is valuable to you, then Bitcoin is valuable to you. And you'll pay at least the current market price to use this system. And if you're a long-term believer that, you know, at least the number of people that believe that Bitcoin is valuable now will exist in the future. But in addition, that more people will think that Bitcoin is valuable in the future, then you might actually buy some of the Bitcoins or mine some of the Bitcoins and hold on to them in an expectation that the price will go up over time, like an investment in stocks or something like that. And so to distinguish between something like Bitcoin and a Ponzi scheme, a Ponzi scheme is like, it's, it's, it's a investment vehicle where um, early investors are used to pay out later investors. And there is no actual production of value anywhere um like there might be an illusion of such or there might be you know some basically just shuffling of paperwork to make it look like there's stuff getting done but ultimately it's like you get early investors to put in some money and then um excuse me new investors are used to pay out old investors um and and ultimately the the money is almost all of it is getting siphoned off by the person who sets up the ponzi scheme and spent on you know hookers and blow or whatever they're into um <laughs> and uh so ultimately that system <laughs> That's like where people with a lot of money spend their money <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. If you're that much of an asshole, what else are you going to spend it on? Um, but, uh, so. Making more money by nefarious means. More Ponzi schemes. Um, uh, maybe ask Madoff. Um, but, but yeah, so like that system is unsustainable. Like ultimately it collapses because there's not enough new investors to pay out old investors and, um, and people catch on to the fact that like their payouts are getting smaller and less frequent and things like that. And, you know, if, if they can't keep expanding the network, then it just collapses. Uh, pyramid schemes are kind of similar, 
um, and they suffer from the same kinds of problems uh, that ultimately they, they, not always, but you know, they can end up collapsing. Um, Ponzi schemes, certainly, but pyramid schemes, somehow they last a long time. Um, but, but basically Ponzi schemes are ultimately unsustainable. And, uh, whereas Bitcoin, it's not like that at all, really. First off, like there is no promise of return. Um, anybody who promises you a return on your Bitcoin investment is like run away. Don't discount Bitcoin, but like run away from that person because they're untrustworthy. Um, that's probably the biggest distinguishing factor is the fact that it Bitcoin itself as a system doesn't promise any kind of return on your investment. Uh, second, um, Bitcoin actually produces value. Like you are getting a service for using bit for buying the Bitcoin and at least using it. Like if you just buy Bitcoins and stick them in your, like stick the wallet in your safes or something like that, then no, you're not really getting any <clears throat> utility out of those Bitcoins at that moment. But what you're doing is supporting the value of Bitcoin, which will incentivize miners long-term to continue maintaining this payment network so that when you're ready, you can unlock your Bitcoins and, and send them to somebody else if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is like real value being produced there. Um, again, if you find a neutral peer-to-peer electronic cash system valuable, then, then Bitcoin um, <clears throat> has, has value to you. Um, so it's, it's been described as the first decentralized autonomous corporation um which is kind of a mouthful but basically decentralized in the sense that there is no center there is no bitcoin company that controls the whole thing um autonomous in the sense that it operates um freely without control so it's related to the decentralized nature but also that uh, people can come and go autonomously without without the overall network being affected too much. Um, and then corporation, because it's kind of like a company in the sense that it's providing a service to you. you know, it's providing value transfer services and time stamping of 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 uh, different entries into the blockchain decentralized timestamping. And so it's it's providing services in the same way that you would expect a, a corporation to, but it's doing it in this decentralized autonomous kind of way. And the, the revenues for this corporation come from one, the new Bitcoins that are being produced, but once all of the Bitcoins that have ever, that will ever exist have been produced, the revenues will come strictly from the transaction fees that people choose to include with their transactions so that miners continue to be incentivized to verify the transactions in the network. Um, So the revenues come from the new Bitcoins, but when those run out, um, it'll just be the transaction fees. Um, And kind of the profit is basically the difference between um, the profit or loss, because 
miners could run at a loss. Um, the, the profit or loss is basically the difference between the cost of producing a block and the amount of Bitcoins that are earned by producing a block. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so long as this stays profitable or at least break even, this, this system will continue to sustain itself. Um, if that becomes unprofitable, then the, the system will become unsustainable and it could end up being a uh like it would become like a hobbyist kind of thing more like back when bitcoin first existed where it's just like people running it off of their laptops or something like that and it won't be able to have as big of an impact but again the people who got in early who have a lot of bitcoin or even just have a little bit now um have a lot to gain if Bitcoin as a system gains worldwide adoption, like the potential market that Bitcoin can go after and, you know, all disclaimers, like I am not endorsing investing in Bitcoin or anything like that. I don't pretend that any of this is actually certainly going to happen. But what's possible is that Bitcoin displaces fiat currencies potentially even precious metals, all different kinds of stores of value that people are using nowadays. Um, and then also potentially replacing uh, the actual value transfer uh, technology that exists, like PayPal, Venmo, ACH, credit cards, all of the different ways that people are transferring value between each other electronically um, or even like physically could be replaced mm -hmm. by Bitcoin. Like that's the market that people can go after, uh, that Bitcoin is going after. And for context, so if Bitcoin is a $5 billion market right now, those markets that I just referenced are in the order of like $15 trillion, something like that, like some astronomical number like that. So there's a huge incentive for people who have Bitcoin now um, and want to see this technology proliferate to spread the word and get people involved and starting to use and adopt this system. Um, the people who got in like really, really, really early definitely are going to be very well off if that happens. The same way that people who invested in Apple when it was like five guys working in their garage are probably doing pretty well right now. Um, it's just, they took the risk back when it was a really big risk um, to get involved and to kind of put, put their reputation on the line, to put their money on the line in some cases, um, to promote Bitcoin, to invest in Bitcoin, to invest in Bitcoin businesses and help build out the infrastructure, all of that. Ultimately, the system is designed so that if Bitcoin is successful, they will be rewarded for that. And so that's how it kind of has like a corporation kind of component to the decentralized autonomous corporation. And that is why it is different than a Ponzi scheme. Like mm -hmm. A Ponzi scheme, ultimately, there's no value and it's unsustainable. But Bitcoin has the potential to be sustainable and it is producing real value. Is the current 
I might say global capitalist system, a Ponzi scheme. Pon, po, sorry, Ponzi scheme. That's an interesting question. Um, hmm. Oh, wow, we've been talking for an hour. <clears throat> Holy moly, we've talked to you forever. <laughs> time flies when you're having a good time. Um, there's so many layers to it that some parts of it are probably a Ponzi scheme and other parts aren't like other parts could be sustainable if the rest of it was sustainable but because there are so many interlocking layers that are dependent on ponzi schemish kinds of setups that you know one card getting pulled out of that this like house that's been built will cause the whole house of cards to come tumbling down and so it's just a very fragile system in that way um for example like debt is like the most of the system is built on debt and the assumption is like growth forever like these two things are fundamentally incompatible because there's only so many people population only grows at a certain rate and of course, like if debt keeps growing and outpacing the rate of people's ability to pay it back, then you know the interest just becomes crippling, and uh, it ultimately leads to um, mass defaults uh, on this debt. And if the money itself is its value is is derived from this debt that ends up getting defaulted on, then the money itself becomes not worth mm-hmm. anything. And so it's. It, it it like it could be sustainable if the assumptions were true, but in so many cases right. the assumptions just aren't they, they don't add up. Um, so yeah, it's that in some in some places it's it's like very much like a Ponzi scheme. In other places, it's just like wrong place, wrong time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. talked about how college students adopting a p2p liquid democracy system in in college for making decisions Mm -hmm. might be able to affect how democracy is done in a more democratic uh appropriate representation way in the future can you describe what that would look like yeah so i i use college students as just one example but this could be applied in many different contexts where people have to make collective uh, de- decisions, uh, like the workplace and local government, uh, places where change is more easily affected than than something like a state or national level. Um, but but I think college is a good place to start because there is some uh, representation of students on college campuses, and it's also it's a formative place. So 
people take a lot of the ideas that they that they come across in college with them through throughout the rest of their lives and it's it's also um uh, a kind of very impressionistic stage as well because it's a formative stage and so if people have a positive experience they might carry that with them or if they have a negative experience they might carry that with them and i think that if you introduce a system like liquid democracy um particularly using peer-to-peer technology um at a college campus as a way for students to represent themselves and to have their voices heard within the student democracy then what you could have is that you know after a generation or two um the first say batch of students that that try this um will be adults and in positions of decision making authority and they might remember their experience with liquid democracy in college and when they come when when they experience the friction associated with um legacy forms of of voting and and representation they'll think back to their experience with liquid democracy and be like yeah you know this could be done better you know i tried this system in college it really worked out well i think we should try this instead and just through the power of suggestion being being able to impart change later in life um even if their colleagues or their peers might not have experienced something like that i think that the more people that you expose to the these new kinds of alternative technologies and the better experience you're able to give them there um the the easier it will be to have long lasting uh, effective change what do you mean by the phrase liquid democracy Yeah, so liquid democracy is a really interesting form of democracy, a uh, representative or delegated uh democracy where ultimately everybody has a vote. Uh, but what they can do is they can delegate that vote to somebody that they trust on certain issues. And so um if I trust you to like if i think that you have better expertise than me in the area of say um sustainability politics then i might delegate my vote on a uh environmental uh issue to you and then you might in turn delegate your vote to somebody who you think even knows even more than you uh but because i trust you there's kind of this implicit transitive trust that i also trust you to trust other people and so it it can become a very centralized system like the the representative democracy that we have today um or it can also be extremely decentralized because ultimately if i see that the people that i trust are making poor decisions on my behalf i can rescind or take back my vote and either entrust it with somebody else or entrust myself with the vote and so this is a way of dealing with kind of the rational ignorance as it's called of voters where like it makes sense that people are uninformed like we live very busy lives if we actually tried to stay up to date on all of the specialized topics that our representatives are are supposedly representing us on 
then we would we would have no time for the things that are important to us in our day-to-day lives family work and and play and so um uh, liquid democracy basically provides a healthy balance to be able to say that you know i can delegate my vote to people who are like in the thick of it on on certain issues and and like have high levels of expertise on these issues but i can also take it back and give it to somebody else so it's not like i'm forced to have a particular person representing me even if they have like there's no link between me and them. like the people who represent me right now in the political system there's no link because i don't i don't vote i didn't i certainly didn't vote for them but i don't even vote at all like there's just no connection but in a liquid democracy system there would be like connection at some level between the person who's voting on my behalf and me mm-hmm. and um and i think that's a very powerful kind of system and uh, it's it can be made very scalable uh, and very democratic with peer-to-peer technology. I'd be really curious to see a study done on um, a segment of the population or de- various uh, you know, cross-sections um, to if that p- people engaging in that kind of system would actually increase voter turnout. Um, Because I feel the same way. I mean, I'm trying to start voting, but it's been like, there's no way these people on this thing are going to represent what I actually think about things. In in many ways, they can't because the way the system is set up, they're they're not able to make the decisions that would be healthy for people. There's just too many big factors and players in place that they're tied by and influenced by. And the way these decisions get made and what even gets put on the ballot there's so much money and and uh influence behind them that are i mean there's yeah. special yeah. interests <laughs> there's all there's these phrases like third the third rail of politics or or political suicide or political capital there there are all these phrases which which just like highlight the the um kind of good old boys kind of vibe that that's that's in politics where it's like if you make one wrong move that could be the end of your career and you know you'll have because the power is so concentrated like there are many different constituencies that are that are relied upon to that are relying on the representatives to make decisions on their behalf and often with complete conflicting interests so i mean it, it it's it's a completely uh broken kind of system uh for our complex society we have a very complex society uh with a very rigid kind of a political system it, it those are that's a fundamental mismatch like we're using uh 18th century technology to represent a 21st century society, it's it's time for an up, up, upgrade.
Um, for people who might want to research more um, alternative governance stuff, there's an Evolver Editions book that is one of my favorite books. It's a really good uh, introduction. It's called Empowering Public Wisdom by Tom Atlee, who is one of the people who runs the Co-Intelligence Institute. And it's kind of an introduction to multiple different um, direct democracy, dynamic facilitation, all these practices that can be done um, to make local uh, policy decisions. And then media can be used to share that process and what comes out of those processes. Um, so it introduces many different ways of, of approaching collective decision making. Um, so really encourage people to check out more of those. Um, and to, to segue to a last question, uh, you had, you've started looking at what Evolver Network is doing, looking at our website and that sort of thing, and mentioned mm -hmm. um, being excited about there being an organization out there that connects the dots between these different practices, that decentralization is a thread that seems to run through many of them. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm just wondering, from your perspective, um, how do you see decentralization benefiting people and the environment and society and um also how do you see evolver network playing into that conversation in a beneficial way yeah so i think that like i mentioned earlier for me decentralization kind of encompasses two really important um <clears throat> features which is uh freedom and resiliency and i think both of those are valuable features to have in a society uh, freedom of people to come and go as they please and freedom for people to express themselves um <clears throat> and um resiliency is important to avoid situations like the great recession which got me interested in all of this um it's it's good for the long-term sustainable future of human civilization that we uh have a resiliency kind of baked into our institutions or our our uh communities and uh just our our daily practices um and in terms of how that fits in with the evolver network a lot of the topics or disciplines that you cover, um, as you said, decentralization is like a common thread. And I don't think that's by accident. I think that a lot of people are coming to these similar conclusions because of the incredible uh, wealth of knowledge that's available on the internet. People are able to find the information that they're looking for much faster and able to draw connections between things in uh, much more rapid succession than was possible when people had to like go to a library which might not actually have the information that they need to draw the correct conclusions from things and so um, what I've noticed is that there's a there's a growing community of people who are who are making these connections and what it looks like is that Evolver is providing the resources that people need to um, make the the connections much faster. I mean, it's all it's all like you're providing all of the knowledge like right there, and explaining why it's relevant to people in their daily lives, and also um, how this is practical 
why this is needed in the first place. Um, like one topic that's really interesting, which um, I don't think it's kind of unintuitive, like how it fits into the grand scheme of things, but like permaculture is an example um, that I've seen a lot of people get interested in permaculture. And it's like, what, why is, why are a bunch of like, like people just suddenly interested in like this, like obscure mode of like food production. And it's, it, it's part of the kind of resiliency and freedom and decentralization kind of theme in that like permaculture is fundamentally like a decentralized kind of farming. Like instead of having a monoculture that is uh, vulnerable to like super strains of um, mold or other kinds of bacteria and viruses and stuff, you have a kind of resilient system of uh, food production where you have all of these, um, like you have different plants and insects and animals that all complement each other in different ways to provide like shade or to provide uh, insect uh, repellent, like natural insect or like predator repellent um, to provide um, different, to like provide health to the soils so that you have a rich um, uh, like composting base and, and micro uh, bio uh, base in the soil. So you have rich food for the plants that you're growing um all of these benefits of permaculture over like a monoculture system uh provides a resiliency of a crop uh and and from what i've read um actually can produce more food per acre uh than you know traditional monoculture systems uh, like the monoculture system right now is just um it's very uh like people people think of like the green revolution as something that you know saved millions of lives and you know maybe that's true i don't i don't know uh how much is true but what i can see um as definitely a direct outcome of the green revolution is the stripping away of the topsoil from many of these farming areas to where now they're basically growing in not soil but like dirt like an inch or something like that instead of like a foot or two feet deep of soil like rich soil that you know the that roots love instead they're they're dealing with like an inch or two of topsoil um, and they're they have to compensate with tons of chemical fertilizers and of course, like tons of chemical pesticides and all of that ends up in people's foods and in people's bodies. And so because uh, permaculture uses um, natural ways of providing uh, in insect repellent or insecticide and natural ways of providing uh, healthy soil for the plants to grow, the food that's produced as a result is healthier for people. So that's just one example of how decentralization has a direct beneficial outcome for the people who are practicing the decentralization. They have healthier food. They have a more sustainable uh, food ecosystem for their food to be produced in. And I think 
there's like a limit to how far you can push decentralization. But I, what I think is really interesting and what I like to cover on my blog is what are those limits? Like how far can we push this? How much benefit, bang for the buck, can we squeeze out of these decentralized systems? And you know how far can we push this uh, decentralization to create maximum freedom, maximum resiliency for, for human civilization? Thank you so much, John, for taking the time and focus and dedication to research across all these areas and to share that on your blog. Really appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> thank you so much to John Light for this introduction to P2P, Bitcoin and decentralization. Please check out his blog at p2pconnects.us. He also recently published a paper on GitHub about decentralization applied to social networks, as in getting off of Facebook and onto more collectively owned models. You can find that at lastsocial.network. If you want to get involved with Bitcoin, more and more businesses accept it online and in person. You can find maps of what businesses near you accept Bitcoin. For example, there's one at coinmap.org. Bloom Network is planning a whole theme for 2016 focused on alternative currency and implementing one for the network. If you'd like to get involved with that, please drop us a line at connect at bloomnetwork.org. You can support the Bloom Network podcast with tax-deductible donations via our website, bloomnetwork.org. We don't yet accept Bitcoin, but perhaps you can help us set that up. Happy networking and have a beautiful day! Boom, bow, boom, boom, bow, boom, boom, bow, boom, boom. Do you own a bloom in my hand? I've got love you for you. And although I'm new at this dance, it's my honor to adore. Right this way.